the scripture is Luke 2, 6 through 7. While they were there, the time came for her to to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger. Tonight, angels far and near sing tender lullabies. Clothes frayed from years of use holds in the warmth of parental love. Animals and shepherds crowd in tight, glowing with adoration while a muffled cry of newborn greets the world. On this Christmas Eve, we light the Christ candle for the child king, the Lamb of God. And now we know he is born and nothing will ever be the same. Hallelujah. Lord, we are so excited about your coming. I ask that as we come here to see you, to worship you, to remember what Christmas is all about, that you would come afresh into our lives, Lord, that you would fill up the space within us that is longing for you, that we would have a sense of your presence tonight, a sense that we would carry with us through everything that we do tomorrow that we would know you as our savior. Come here for the world and also come here for us. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. And ask now that the ushers come forward to receive the offering.
Listen. It's the voice of someone shouting. Clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills. Straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Did you get that last part? The glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together unless they're too busy. How busy are you? <laughs> That's a loaded question at Christmas, right? I saw an SUV try to run over some pedestrians, you know, like, God bless you, Merry Christmas, you know, right out of the way. I'm sure y'all have seen similar acts of Christmas brutality going on in the world around you. And I, I ask you, how busy are we that we feel like we need to run over pedestrians to get where we're going? Anybody recognize this, just a street musician? Yes, some of you do. Actually, at the first service, the musicians over here were like, we know who that is, we know who that is. Well, let me play along with me for a minute here. Um, Brad knows, and the musicians know who this is. But to everybody else, he just looked like a street musician, just one of those people who play in the subway stations. This is a subway station, a metro station in Washington, D.C. The day is Friday. It's Friday morning at 7.51 a.m., and he'll play for 43 minutes. This guy in the ball cap and the jeans, and 1,097 people will walk past him. And Brad, who is he? Do you know? You know he's a great violin player. Do you guys want to supply who he is? Joshua Bell. He's one of, he's a genius violin player. He's so good that they knew him. They don't have to see, you know, this, this nice picture of him. They're like, ooh, they can hear the, his, by his playing that he is incredible, that he is amazing. And y'all know the piece that he's playing. He's playing Bach, and he's playing the Cacione, and it's like the third something. I don't know because I'm not musical. But the, it is so intense and so difficult that few people in the world can play it. And so he's playing one of the most beautiful, three, over 300 years old pieces of music ever written. And it's one of the most difficult. And what's everybody doing? <laughs> Got to go run over some pedestrians. I'm late, right? These are all, this is, this is L'Enfant Plaza. These are all very important people. This is the hub of government in Washington, D.C. These are policy analysts and consultants and business exec, all these different people. They're very important. At 751, they have places to be. And so they are so busy that they walk past the concert of the century. Uh, this same week that Joshua Bell played in a metro station and opened up his violin case and stuff, he played, I think it was at Carnegie Hall, I could be wrong, but you want to know how much people paid to hear this man play? For the cheap seats. $100, $100 to sit in the cheap seats to hear him play. And they stifled their coughs, you know, because if you're at a classical concert, you don't cough while, you know, while he's playing. And then they broke into applause. What happened when he finished this most grand piece of music ever? What happened in the, su in the subway station? Nothing. The Washington Post interviewed him, and they, they said, what was the hardest? And he said, well, no one would look at me. And when I stopped, it was silent, and I'm not used to that. <laughs> He's not. Um, he was playing 
So he is a genius. You know, people love him. Um, genius classical musician, violinist, one of the best in the world. The violin he's playing, it's worth more than your home. It's a Stradivarius. He sold his old lesser million-dollar violin to pick up this $3.5 million violin um, and went into debt to do it. He's one of the greatest ever. And how many people do you think of that 1,097 that walked past this amazing concert? Did you know that when they set this up, they were just going to try to see, you know how they sometimes put art in different places? This is something large cities like to do, and just kind of this concert for free. Um, when they did this, they thought, we better put some bouncers around him because it could get out of control, right? People will see, and they'll just, the classical music fiends will be like, Rah! you know, mosh pit and all this kind of stuff. And so um, they have all these, like, bouncers ready to go at the shoe shine stand if they need it. You want to know how many people out of the 1,097 cultured, educated, smart people stopped? Seven. That means that 1,090 people couldn't spare even a minute to listen to the most beautiful music that would likely ever be played in their entire lives for them. They were too busy. How busy are you? What is it that because of your busyness, you are missing that's right there for you? You know, if all that, if I thought that by being busy, all you were gonna walk by is Joshua Bell, I would be sad for you, but it wouldn't be a tragedy. But on Christmas, I feel like the tragedy is that often the symphony that is playing for us is of God, that God is meeting us in these places of our ordinary lives, and we are so busy that we walk right past. Us people who are longing for the Lord, who are praying, Lord, show yourself, make, help me believe in you. Maybe it's not that God isn't showing up. Maybe it's that we're just not seeing. Now let's go to Jesus' birth. I've been talking with the church, and they know that there were prophecies. Isaiah, that I just read, is one of them, that the world will see the Savior, that the Savior will come, that he'll deliver them. And the people in the first century when Jesus came were really impoverished. Seventy percent of them lived below a subsistence living. So they couldn't even feed everyone in their family every day. They really didn't know where their food was going to come from. The Roman Empire is taxing them. They, they walk through Jerusalem and they've made a spectacle out of their kinsmen by putting them up on crosses and saying, this is what happens if you defy Rome. So it was a really dark time. It was a dangerous time. Their longing for a savior had been percolating in their hearts over hundreds of years, thousands of years, that God would come back with power and redeem them. And they knew these promises in the Old Testament, 700 of them, they knew them by heart. So if this was a song that God was going to sing to them, they had memorized its phrasing. They knew the harmony. They knew the melody. They knew the notes of the, of the song of salvation. And when they put their kids to bed and they were crying because they didn't have enough to eat, back in the background of their mind would be, God will not leave us like this. God will save us. A Savior is coming. When they had to pay their taxes and it got more and more each year, back in the background, God is our king. He will save us. When they saw the Romans put crosses up, with criminals, people who just defied them, they would remember, our God is stronger than this nation. He will come. He promised us he will. And so this is the melody that's playing in their lives. This is the hope of their lives. And yet when it starts to play, when the song, the concert is finally played, 
they miss it. I mean, I love the Christmas story, but what's so shocking is how few people go and respond. If you have a nation longing for God, longing for their Savior, and he finally shows up, you'd think it would be a mob scene, just like a Joshua Bell concert, the mosh pit, and instead it's nobody. I mean, Mary and Joseph, you know, it's been pretty clear God's working in their lives. They go to Bethlehem. Nobody pays them any mind. I mean, they're more concerned about where am I going to stay and what am I going to do with my family and, oh, my gosh, the roast needs to get out of the oven or what am I going to feed people that they don't notice Mary and Joseph. And then later that night, because no one has come to welcome the Savior of the world, God sends angels, right? It's like, okay, go talk. The only people still up, go talk to the shepherds. So the sky is filled with angels. Now, they're making a ruckus, right? What shocks me is that the town of Bethlehem doesn't go, hey, what's that blinding light and all that noise coming from the fields over there? Like, what's going on? Well, back to sleep. (sighs) You know, like, what? I mean, if angels were in the sky here in Spicewood, don't you think we'd be calling each other? I mean, like, what's that? What's that light that you, you know, what's that heavenly sound that I hear? What is going on? You know, it filled the sky. The, the sky became like day. And there were all these voices. And these, this little group of shepherds is the only ones that's like, hey, something cool is going on here. And so they run to Bethlehem, and they see Jesus, right? Just like the angels said. The angels gave him a very clear sign. You're going to find the Savior of the world in a feeding trough. That's what the Bible says. And so they're like, okay, Savior of the world in a feeding trough. Let's go find a baby in a feeding trough. Only baby in a feeding trough in Bethlehem, you know? That was not par for the course, you guys. That was something sad that happened to them. And so they found Jesus there in the feeding trough, and they are amazed, right? And the Bible says after seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. And all who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. Period. We never hear that they, like, went to go see themselves because they had a lot of other important things to do. Busy, busy, busy. Eight days later, you go down to verse 21 in Luke chapter 2. They take Jesus to the temple. Here's another shot for the people because if you go to the temple, it's like coming, sorry, it's like coming to church. I figure if you're at church, you kind of want to meet the Lord. Like you're at least sort of wanting an encounter with God if you come to the temple. These people wanted an encounter with the Lord. They were there to pray. They were there to give. They were there to offer a sacrifice to try to be forgiven. They're searching for the Lord in the temple. This was the one place. We have churches all over the place now. This was it. If you made a journey to the temple, you might have traveled days to get there. And who's in the temple that day? The Lord, the Messiah, the one they've all been waiting for. God's glory had lifted off the temple hundreds of years ago, and they'd all been praying for the day when he would come back. And here he was, and who sees him? Out of hundreds, maybe thousands, two people, Simeon and Anna. Simeon was so old, people would say, He's still alive? (laughs) Simeon sees him. He's led by the Spirit. God had promised him. 
The Messiah is so close that before you die, you will see him. And so he was looking. So Simeon sees this little baby with poor parents, not a grown conqueror, not royal robes. I don't know how he saw him, but he saw him. And he takes Jesus in his arms and he says, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. And then he goes back to those words of Isaiah, all the people will see your salvation. And he says, I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all the people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people, Israel. I have seen him. One person out of hundreds. Do you want to be the hundreds of people who just walk by and miss it? Not me. Because I have this sneaking suspicion that God is often showing up in places we're not expecting God to be. In ways we weren't thinking of. And that when the song of salvation starts to play, it may not be wearing a tuxedo, it may be wearing a ball cap and jeans in a metro station. How did Simeon see him? Well, not because he was super religious or holy or because he was down on his knees praying. He was just looking he just wanted to see that Savior more than he wanted any other thing in the world. He was more concerned with finding the Messiah than he was with how his back hurt or what he needed to do with the rest of his day or how Social Security was looking that year or whatever it was, he was more concerned. He knew those were important things. He wanted to see the Lord. And so he saw him. And the second thing was he wasn't fooled by appearances. There's, um, there's a guy who is a senior curator. He's Mark Leithauser, a senior curator of the National Gallery. And the Washington Post interviewed him after, um, after Joshua Bell played. Because all these people, um, they would interview them as soon as they walked through. They'd be like, hey, did you see the violinist? And they'd be like, what violinist? I didn't see a violinist. I mean, the music is filling like the whole time. They're like, yeah, I was listening to my iPod. Or like, you know, they just missed it. And so this guy who's the curator of the National Gallery says, let me explain it to you like this. If I took an Ellsworth Kelly, which is a very fine painting, it's worth $5 million. And he said, if I took it out of its frame and I put it um, on in a deli where they're selling artwork and I put a price tag that said $150, um, no one would notice it. He said, an art curator might look at that and say, hey, that looks a little bit like an Ellsworth Kelly. Would you pass the salt? Simply because it's lost in the, it doesn't have its context for us to say, this is important. Look at this. And I want you to know that when God shows up in your life, there won't be neon signs going, this is important. There's, I mean, there's a couple times God shows up with fire from heaven, but that's not the usual way, right? So if you're waiting for fire from heaven and the trumpet's sounding and, you know, all this stuff, that's not how God shows up. God shows up walking into the temple as a little baby, as a baby in a feeding trough, as a man walking by when you think all hope is gone. That's how God shows up in our lives. And what I would encourage us to do this Christmas is to look for him more than we're looking for anything else. To decide that more than we want to see the presence, more even than we want to see our family, we want to see God's salvation. We want to be made new, to be transformed people. 
And even if there are no signs saying, this is it, we know God can come. So as you watch this again, as you watch this concert that 1,090 people walked by, I want you to look for the place that you want to be, the person you want to be in the middle of this. That's who I hope we'll be. I hope we'll be the person who stops and as everybody else hurries by, that we will stand there and just make sure that you are looking for him because when you are, you will find him this Christmas. May his peace be yours. Merry Christmas and amen. Merry Christmas.